was hyperventilating. I couldn't breathe. I was literally laying on the floor of the hotel room, gasping for air. It wasn't a heart attack. It was literally a panic attack because all I could think about was, that's it. It's over. Company's dead. I don't have the money. I got to go back and fire all my employees and it's done. Hello and welcome. I'm Pablo Casalimas, and you are listening to The Art of Biz, a show where we share the stories of distinct entrepreneurs, along with their successes, failures, and the lessons they've learned along their journeys. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Marty Schaffel because he's got so many great stories to share, and we couldn't capture it all in one episode. Without any further ado, we'll get right into it. You say you bought these 10 devices and sold them. Then you bought 20 more, then 50 more, then 1,000. You make it sound like it was all just so easy. Was it easy? Like, no. It, it, you know, was, it was brutal. <laughs> so talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced. I'm sure not everybody was like, I'm ready to buy right now. Here's my credit card. Um, probably the first major problem I had, the scariest that I had, was... Initially, we were just selling this Croy lettering machine from this company called Croy Industries. And they were allowing me to buy on credit. But the problem I was having was as I started selling more of these and I started selling them to government agencies and to large companies, they weren't paying me on the spot. They were giving me a purchase order. I had to send them a bill and they would eventually pay the bill, but it might take 60 or 90 days for that whole cycle to take place. No one used credit cards back then to buy anything. Right. And these bigger entities wanted to use their procurement system, which was very slow. So I found that that I ordered the equipment from Croy, it came in, but they wanted to be paid sooner than I was getting the money from my customers. And I didn't have the ability to get a loan from a bank. But there was a woman named Linda Pearson who was in charge of credit at Croy, and she would allow me to take a certain portion of the amount of money they that I owed them and it, let it stretch out a bit further than what their terms were, which in effect was a line of credit that I wasn't able to get from a bank. And that eventually became $100,000 worth of bills that she allowed to go past due as long as I kept everything else current. And then I would pay down on that $100,000, but then others would kind of fall into it. So I perpetually had $100,000 that I owed them that was past the time that it was due, but I suffered from having so many customers who owed me money and they weren't paying me until after the bills were due. And I was able to show her the kinds of customers I had. So she knew that the money was going to come, and I was Mm -hmm. able to show her that, and I always kept my word for what I did. But Croy got sold to another group of people, and one day the sales rep from their company said, you need to come out to Arizona. The The new senior management wants to meet you, and we'd like you to come out to the headquarters. So I said, okay. Well, 
they didn't give me a plane ticket, and that made me a little bit nervous. Usually, if people wanted you to be their guest, they would fly you there. So a little odd. And then when I landed, and he picked me up at the airport, and he said, you can drop your stuff off at the hotel. I got to the hotel, and there was no room reservation in my name. They hadn't paid for it, and I thought, that's kind of odd, being a good customer of theirs and being their guest, and they didn't pay my hotel. That made me a little more nervous. And I had prepared a presentation just in case it was necessary, telling them about where I was going with the company, what was happening, how I had done for them so far, what my projections were for the future. So we get to the headquarters, we go in this conference room, and the new senior executives are in there. And I do this whole presentation telling them you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, past, present, future. And I just didn't feel like they were all that excited. And I didn't know any of these people. They were all new from this new ownership, and it was a private equity group. They were what I would call financial buyers, um, and they were not as interested in the relationship as they were in the financial metrics uh, inside the company. And right after I finished my presentation, the new CEO says, so uh, you owe us $100,000 that's perpetually past due, and we've been acting as your bank. Well, we're not going to do that anymore. So effective immediately, and this was a Friday, uh, if you haven't remitted that $100,000 by Monday, we're going to put you on credit hold, and you'll receive no more merchandise until you pay the $100,000. And then they all got up and left the room and left me sitting there, just <laughs> me and the sales rep. What was going through your head in that moment? Total panic. So I get in the car with the sales rep. He's driving me back to the hotel, and I'm screaming at him, going, what did you just subject me to? Why didn't you warn me? How's this happening? What's going on? He said, sorry, it's, it's the new regime, and they're all about numbers. They're not about relationships. He left. He dropped me off at the hotel. This is very strange for the kind of the amount of business I was doing with them. Uh, it's very peculiar to me. And I went in the hotel room, and I immediately collapsed on the floor. And I'm 29, 30 years old. I collapsed on the floor in a total panic attack, like nothing I ever experienced. I was hyperventilating. I couldn't breathe. I was literally laying on the floor of the hotel room, gasping for air. It wasn't a heart attack. It was literally a panic attack because all I could think about was, that's it. It's over. Company's dead. I don't have the money. I got to go back and fire all my employees and find a job. It's done. And that was absolutely the scariest, most brutal experience that I had up until then. So it took a, a lot of maneuvering. I couldn't get a bank loan. The bank I needed a hundred thousand dollar bank loan and the bank said, Well you have to have a hundred thousand dollars worth of assets. I didn't have a hundred thousand dollars worth of assets. So I went to two different uncles, and I begged them to give me a 90-day loan each, uh, $50,000, that I could put in the bank and show the bank that I had $100,000 to get the bank to loan me the $100,000. Right. I think the bank anticipated my $100,000 would stay in there, but as soon as they loaned me the money, 
<laughs> repaid it. I repaid uh, my uncles, and I gave them their money back, and then I used $100,000 to pay off uh, Croy. But it became my mission to not do business with them as fast as I could. And a competitor uh, popped up who was several former Croy employees who saw that this was a strange new regime, created some competitive products. I gravitated to them. I made it my mission to not do business with them, but to do business with this other company. We went on to be their biggest, if not second biggest customer at the time of the new company. And a year and a half later, Croy filed bankruptcy. Wow. Very interesting set of circumstances. You talk a lot about how important leadership is in organizations and how people will always gravitate towards companies where the management is better and the leadership is better. And I think this is a really key example that you just demonstrated of a company putting the financials, putting the numbers over the people and failing. How did you in your organization put people first? Well, there's a number of key principles that I think have to come into play. The first one is you can't be about the money. Any entrepreneur building a business that's all about the money is likely to fail as opposed to succeed. The money comes if you do everything else right. It almost always comes if you just do the right thing. So to me, what were those right things? There were a number of principles that we had to employ. We had to make sure that we hired really good people and that we demonstrated the highest degree of loyalty to our employees that we could in the hopes of receiving that same degree of loyalty from them. Because you need that passion from people and you need people who would take a bullet for the company because they know that you would do that for them. That was the level of importance that I placed on that relationship. The second one is you have to minimize attrition and we over time had negligible attrition because we did four or five things well I think. The first one was we made sure we paid people fairly. But if we did a number of other things right, we didn't have to overpay people. We didn't have to buy their love. People want to be paid fairly, but there's other things that are important to them. People want to be recognized. Everybody has what I call a recognition quotient. Some people need a lot of recognition. Some people need less. But everybody wants, all of us, want to be recognized for what we do. So my mission was to make sure that our company did the best job possible to recognize and thank people for what they did. The next one is people want to feel like they're part of a cause they believe in and would never do anything to injure that cause or to hurt the friends that they've made in the organization. So we tried to do as many things as we could to foster that environment of believing and feeling a part of a cause. In the morning, I would show up with uh, these huge sheet uh, pizzas of Cuban bread with a, it was like a, a pastry with marinara sauce on top. And there's a Cuban bakery near our offices. And I would bring sheets of these in and walk by everybody's cubicle with a roll of paper towels or stack of napkins. And at 8 o'clock in the morning, serve everybody at their desk a pastry. Um, 
we would set a goal, and if we hit that goal, I would stand in the parking lot, and after having asked every employee what kind of steak they want me to grill for them, and I have all those steaks ordered and brought in, it could be a New York strip, a Delmonico, a filet mignon, I would stand in our parking lot and grill hundreds of steaks every year to thank everybody. Uh, and the press would come, and it would just be a, a great event. And here on this busy street, you saw this huge grill and all these people uh, eating steak. And it was, it became a newsworthy event every year. It was called the Marty Q. The Marty Q. And I'd be standing out there in this huge chef's hat and apron and making steaks. Um, there were just many things that we tried to make sure we did every day to cause people to know that they were part of a cause. And people didn't want to leave that. Another thing that's really critical is people want to feel significant and important. And if you don't provide that, and that's different than recognition. People want to know that what they do matters, what they think matters, what they feel matters. And that's also done through empowerment. People want to feel like they're making a difference. And if they can be empowered to make a difference and to make decisions and do things, then they aren't going anywhere. They're happy. They they're passionate. They love what they're doing. That empowerment is huge. One of the real obstacles for a business to be successful is when fear starts to enter in the organization. An organization is dynamic if employees make decisions. If employees are afraid to make a decision, then you have a paralyzed organization. If they're afraid that if they make a decision, then they're going to be yelled at or punished if there's a bad outcome, they'll never make a decision. That fear is paralysis. So over and over, I told our employees, you can never be fired from this company if you made a decision, no matter how bad the outcome, as long as you truly believed that that decision was right for the company or for fellow employees or for customers. As long as you believe that it was truly right in that context, no matter what the outcome, you can't be fired. However, if the decision was based on greed or ego or uh, personal financial gain over uh, what's right for the company, the customer, or fellow employees, you're probably toast. But nobody could be fired if they did what they truly believed was right. So as a result, people weren't afraid to make a decision. Therefore, you didn't have this paralysis of people waiting to have permission to do something rather than to take an initiative to do something. And that to me is the difference between a dynamic organization and a paralyzed organization. You sound like you have this really in-depth, great understanding of people, of their psychology, what motivates them, how to get them motivated, and how to get them to do what you need them to do to succeed. Is that something that you just had from the beginning? Where did you learn that? Um, I think leadership is kind of armchair psychology, and I never 
studied psychology. I actually was declared a psychology major for one semester at University of Florida and quickly changed to political science and eventually business and I think I changed my major seven times while I was a um, professional student for seven years at the University <laughs> of Florida before I eventually was told to go get a job. But I found that understanding what people think and feel is really critical to make sure that you can get the most out of what they do every day. And I spent a lot of time as an armchair psychologist if people came in my office and explained and felt comfortable explaining to me what uh, is going on that I might need to know or understand, whether it's in their lives or in the company. But you have to have an environment where people aren't afraid. And if you have that, it's important. Many students have asked me, what's the greatest, best class I ever took as a student at University of Florida? And I say, the best class I ever took when I was a student at University of Florida wasn't offered on campus. It was offered uh, by the Suicide Crisis Center where I volunteered uh, for a year uh, to be on the phones. But before I could answer the first phone call, I had to spend four months in training, several nights a week for several hours. And they taught us the art of active listening. How do you get people to talk and tell you what they're thinking and feeling? And that was the most valuable course I ever took. Not only was it critical for me to understand what employees were thinking and feeling, but it was hugely important in sales to ask customers what they were thinking, feeling, needed, uh, what their concerns or fears were about making a decision, what was important to them, and the ability to ask open-ended questions and to connect with using empathy to connect with what their emotion is around a topic, what they're thinking or feeling, became the most powerful thing that I ever learned. It seems like a lot of your success came from your ability to really understand people and not just hire very talented people and keep them, but also keep them happy, keep them feeling significant, and keep them in a place where they felt like they were making a difference and contributing. You know, unless you're in a business that doesn't have people in it, how you motivate and impassion people is the key to success. There is, there's no other way to get there. And I've noticed that when a company goes from being totally employee focused, knowing that the financial results will come as a result, to becoming totally focused on financial results and being less concerned about people, the dynamics change and the companies lose that bond that they have with employees and good employees leave. And the worst part about employees leaving is good employees can go anywhere. And then you're stuck with just mediocre employees. You can't run off with a stick. So, and then worse, actually, is when you lose a good employee and they go somewhere else, they call back to all their friends and say, hey, I'm over here now, man, it's great, you should come. And in order to justify their decision, they then try and get other people to come as well. So it becomes 
very damaging for an organization to lose people, particularly for not good reasons. And I've always believed that people don't leave good companies, they leave bad managers. And typically those managers are ones that have a very low level of self-confidence and self-esteem and motivate by fear rather than by encouragement and positive reinforcement. How are you able to identify a manager or leader within your organization that is operating under fear? Well, unfortunately, the fastest way is to see people leaving the company who report to that manager. You show me a department or a division or a part of the company that is losing more people than it should, and I'll show you a problem with management. And you can usually home in on exactly who's causing that problem. You talked a lot about problem employees and how they can really negatively impact your organization. Can you rehabilitate a problem employee? I would try very hard to do that. But I think over time I learned that maybe 1 in 25 you may be able to get a positive result or improvement from if they really have um, a severely negative attitude about the company, customers, fellow employees, or what their responsibilities are on a daily basis. So I used to be optimistic and hope that I could cause everybody to be happy when they got up every day and uh, came to work and did their job, but some people never will be. And I would say to employees, there are four possible conditions and three of them are perfectly acceptable to me, but one isn't. You can be here at AVISPL and be happy. You can be somewhere else besides AVISPL and be happy. You can be somewhere else besides AVISPL and be totally unhappy and miserable. But you cannot be at AVISPL and be unhappy or be miserable. So. Three of those four are perfectly acceptable, but the last one is totally unacceptable and you won't survive that. Right. I think we learned a lot from the most recent Gallup poll on employee satisfaction and how they can have a negative impact on your organization. Can you elaborate a little? I know you talk a lot about that poll and the implications of it. Well, Gallup uh, did a uh, employee satisfaction survey. They do it every year and I hope I'm precise on these numbers, but I believe they interviewed about 750,000 workers in the workplace. And the data that I recall was that approximately 16% of the workforce is miserable, unhappy, and is a direct negative influence on the company, on employees, on customers, and create a very deteriorating situation for the company. 33% of the employees are very passionate, motivated, and excited about the company and their jobs and what they do every day. The real challenge is the 51% that are remaining that 
are not real clear and visibly hurting the organization by specific actions they do, but they're not motivated, they're not excited, they're not particularly productive, they're spending a good bit of their time on their computers looking for their next job or surfing the internet or doing something besides being highly impactful and accomplishing what you would hope they would do with great excitement and passion. So management, as a result of this survey, needs to take note of a few things. The first thing we all have to take note of is that that 16% we have to whittle away at because they are hurting our companies. Whether we can rehabilitate them or we, whether we can help them find another place to be besides where they're at, something has to be done to address that miserable and destructive 16%. The 33% you want to continue to encourage and motivate, and the 51% leadership has to take the responsibility to say, wow, we have to convert as much if not all of the 51% into motivated, passionate, excited, highly productive employees. Now, speaking about the management of a company, I've heard you talk a lot about a concept that I think you coined called management nirvana. Can you explain what management nirvana is and how do you achieve it? I had numerous goals over time. My last three goals were I wanted to see the company cross a billion dollars. And they're going to do that this year probably, but I was sold all of my stock over the last 10 years. So unfortunately, we'll not be in a position of ownership when the company crosses that goal. But it was my one of my three final lofty goals. My second one was for the company to establish the biggest organically grown footprint around the country and around the world. And we did create the biggest company with the largest footprint. So that goal was met. The third goal I had was this concept called management nirvana. And by definition, it's pretty simple. Nobody was allowed to report to me if they needed to be managed. And if they did need to be managed, they were going to have to report to somebody else or find another career. So what do I mean by this? I wanted to have a management team where we would sit around a conference room table. We would agree on the ideas and direction and focus and action plans that everybody owned and that we're going to get done. And that when we all got up from the table, everybody knew what they were responsible for, and I never had to worry whether they would do what they said they were going to do. When I got to a point where those were the only kind of people that reported to me, it was fantastic. It was nirvana, because at this point in time, I didn't have to worry about managing people. I was able to collectively brainstorm and everybody would bring their best ideas forward and we would hash them out in a very vigorous way. But I knew that when we left the room, we all supported each other and we all knew where we were going, what our vision statement was, what our mission statement was, what the action plans were we had to act on, what all of our objectives were, and what all of our strategies were. So Management Nirvana essentially allows you to stop working in the business and start working on the business, correct? 
Exactly. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out our blog where we summarize the key points from every episode for your convenience. You can find it at artofbiz.blog. Lastly, I would like to shout out two people in particular who make this show possible. The first is Jay Rogue for recording and cleaning all of our audio. Check out his new album called Friends and Lovers, streaming on Spotify and all other major platforms right now. The second is Drayson, who has produced all of our tracks that we use on the show. He will be dropping his first album called Transcendence in 2019.